0: The mortar saw go out to or a hat to or some mars, some Buddha saw. The mortar saw go out to Tomorrow is the New Moon Day, which means for us it's a quiet day and we have an opportunity to let go of some of the activities we've been involved with and turn attention inwards and hopefully remind ourselves what we're doing here and that is learning to accurately meet ourselves where we are with all our hopeful, positive aspirations and with our not so positive difficulties and challenges. How to accurately meet ourselves as we are right here and now, and in meeting ourselves again, hopefully, learning to let go of ourselves, not take ourselves quite so seriously. Recently I had a conversation with a long-time friend and supporter of the monastery who was telling me about his 14-year-old daughter who, as part of the school curriculum, had been sent off with a group of other girls to the school farm and to spend two months uh, unplugged, no no devices, seven girls per house, learning how to be self-reliant, organising food, cooking, looking after themselves, getting to know themselves. And what really impressed me was that part of this program involved the girls individually spending time out in the forest, and this is Australian forest, Mm -hmm. just with a canopy under six hours alone in the forest under a canopy, no books, no devices. And the Australian forest is I've lived there, it's very interesting. It's <laughs> snakes and ants and ticks and spiders and critters and and what strikes me about the skillfulness of this approach is that these students are really being challenged to go beyond their comfort zone. In other words, getting to meet themselves in places where they didn't already know themselves. And I think this is tremendously important. And We look at the difficulties that so many people are struggling with these days. and Anxiety and And confusion, and it seems to me that a a lot of these struggles are born out of a lack of a sense of inner awareness or inner identity. People don't know themselves and don't know who they are, and struggling to find some sense of inner security. Who am I? Am I my thoughts? Am I my feelings? Am I my nationality? Am I spirit? Mm. What am I? Who am I? The default, it seems, these days, for a large number of people anyway, is to hold to the sense of self, their personality. And this is me my views, my opinions, this is who I am and in an attempt to, it seems, find a sense of security. However, it doesn't take a lot of reflection to notice that there really isn't any stability in our personality, in our character. There's all sorts of characters swirling around inside us happy me, the unhappy me, the together me, the confused me, the mature me, the inadequate me, all these different me's, and which is the real me. And were we born with a sense of me? People who study these things are, I think, universally in agreement that we're not born with an individuated sense of self. We're born with awareness. You look at a little child and There's awareness there, there's consciousness there. However, there's no individuated sense of self, not for quite a long time. It takes years, and depending on the environment, the influences, the culture that the child is growing into, it can, it'll take a number of years, maybe up to seven years, before a real individuated sense of self is established, and and then what happens? We're not born with it; it evolves, and and then we incline towards clinging to it. Mm-hmm. And you see the way children behave, and this sense of themselves and my toys, I want, I don't want, and, and it takes a lot of. A lot of stewarding, a lot of caring on the part of parents to support the maturation of these little beings and I was recently watching a dialogue between two fathers uh, talking about their their young children and <laughs> describing them as little monsters and and uh, which is uh, that's a that's <laughs> a sentiment I can sympathize with, but i 'm not used to hearing parents talk about their children like that and, and however, children going through the stage of develop developing a sense of self, an ego identity, experimenting with what they can get away with yes there's a lot of it's just taking somebody else's toys and upsetting your your siblings and you know, selfishness and meanness and it takes a lot of effort on the part of caring, loving, attentive parents to steward the child through those formative years, Mm. developing what we hope will end up being a balanced sense of self. Mm. However, unfortunately, even a balanced sense of self is not necessarily a wise sense of self. And as we would all know, the Buddha had a lot to say about the self. And of course, also... Um, the phenomenon of not-self, or aware that the Buddha taught a lot about anatta, not-self, and, and investigating this phenomenon. Not positing a philosophical position, there is no self, however we are encouraged to look at our experience and the feelings, is this really me? Is this really mine? Is this really a self? To look at our thoughts, and are those really me? These thoughts Really mine, are these thoughts really myself? The experiences that we have to investigate, to undermine the assumption of there being a solid and substantial, permanent sense of self. However, that doesn't mean to say that the Buddha dismissed the value or the function of a conventional sense of self. In fact, he spoke a lot about it and and that very famous discourse that many of us would know how to recite, the Mahamangala Sutta, it is Atasamapanitica, etang mangala mutamang. One's self-rightly aligned, this is the greatest blessing. One's self-rightly aligned. means aligned in a way that leads to true well-being, that leads to the realisation of the potential that human beings have for that which is profoundly beautiful, for true wisdom and compassion. However, before we're rightly aligned, it takes a lot of work. So so working on the self, studying the self, is something that the Buddha encouraged a great deal. Mm -hmm. Dhammapada verse 157 says, if you hold yourself dear, then you constantly maintain careful self-regard if you hold yourself dear, then you constantly maintain careful self-regard. It talks actually about the the three stages of life or the three phases of the night and I'm not clear about that. However, it does seem to mean being constant, vigilant in exercising this careful self-regard. Now, I know myself. I made a mistake when I came across the Buddha's teachings. I was really impressed by the teachings on anatta. I don't think I'm totally alone in that, and it's it's interesting. and And I, I was really drawn to investigating this aspect of the Buddha's teachings, anatta. And, however, I would say very strongly that we risk we risk falling into great danger if we try to bypass what the Buddha had to say about the self-rightly aligned, training the self, holding ourselves dear. Another verse, 160 in the Dhammapada. Truly, it is yourself that you depend upon. How could you really depend upon another? Ātahi nato, nato Truly, it is yourself that you depend upon. How could you really depend upon another? When you reach the stage of true self-reliance, you find a rare refuge. So, this encouragement to study the self, investigate the self, get to know the self, meet ourselves, there's there's a point to that. However, when we hear this, maintaining careful self-regard, maybe... It raises the question: Well, what's what's the difference between that constantly maintaining self careful self regard? What's the difference between that and becoming self obsessed, which is a, obviously a regrettable, unpleasant condition? What is the difference? Well, I would say this is where we need to think very very carefully. And hopefully look into and come to understand the value, the place of going for refuge. This expression, I go for refuge to the Buddha. I go for refuge to the Dhamma. I go for refuge to the Sangha. this buddhang saranangachami. I go for refuge to the Buddha. Now in the beginning, probably most of us heard that. I mean, When I first came across this concept of going for refuge to the Buddha, I assumed it meant going along with the buddhist teachings thinking that this this man who lived in india 2600 years ago had these amazing teachings and they were amazing i think the buddhist teachings yeah i think truly amazing however just clinging to the buddhist teachings and believing in the buddhist teachings that's not the only aspect of going for refuge to the buddha uh, the human being that lived in india that became the Buddha, he passed away many years ago. However, he left the Dhamma, he left the teachings, and these teachings are pointing at what? Not just clinging to ideas about reality, they're pointing at cultivating quality of awareness, a capacity for seeing beyond the way things merely appear to be, including the ability to see beyond the way the sense of self appears to be. In the beginning... When we talk about going for refuge, we can't just assume that we're going to suddenly wake up to this rare refuge, this, this state of true self reliance that the Buddha is referring to. However, we can understand it as a psychological approximation. To me, these, the refuge in the Buddha is establishing like a psychological fulcrum around which our efforts are organized. If we don't have such a fulcrum or such a frame of reference, then there's a risk that our efforts are organized around another structure in the mind, which is the ego, the personality, the sense of self. And with that comes a very real risk of becoming ego-centered, self-obsessed. And that is really dangerous because, as we were just considering, the sense of self is not a stable thing. People are looking for something stable, they're looking for a sense of security. However, in clinging to and, and, and holding up our sense of self, our personality as ultimate, as truly valuable, is, is clinging to something that's inherently unstable. And so, of course, it leads to a sense of anxiety, of course, it leads to fear and instability. So, the value, the function of going for refuge to the Buddha, establishing the refuge in this quality of awareness, what I like to refer to as selfless, just-knowing awareness, establishing this as an approximation of the rare refuge that the Buddha was talking about. Was like a like, as I was saying, a psychological fulcrum, which effectively relativizes the sense of self demonising the sense of self is a big mistake. It's it's a great pity that so many of the New Age people talk about getting rid of the ego, and demonising the ego, and feeling embarrassed about having an ego. The Buddha didn't want us to apologise for having a sense of self, didn't want us to feel ashamed of having a personality. The thing is that the, the sense of self needs to be tamed, needs to be trained. And going for refuge is, is, I would say, at the core of this effort of taming, of training, the sense of self. The heart energy, the mind energy, without training, without taming, becomes dissipated. Like when the rain falls on our Dhamma Hall roof here, Without the guttering and the piping that water would just run off the roof into the ground and which might be all right although over a period of time all that water could end up destabilizing the foundations of the building. Thankfully we have this nice guttering that trains the water to go in a particular direction into into the water tank and we can make use of the water water drain off in a useful direction that's not going to cause damage likewise the energy of our hearts of our minds if they're not trained then they can go wild and so core to this is meeting ourselves in our wildness in our untrained nature in our anger in our fear in our stress meeting ourselves there in a way whereby we learn to be able to study where the real cause of the difficulties lie. It's in clinging. This clinging to dislike creates ill will. Dislike is normal. Clinging to dislike Turns into something quite toxic and damaging. Fear is perfectly normal. Mm. Well, if somebody's drunk and tries to attack you, you want to feel afraid and move fast, mm. protect yourself from danger. There's nothing wrong with feeling afraid. However, if we cling to fear, it turns into something else, something seriously damaging. So clinging to me and my way, clinging to to the sense of self creates suffering. This is not just speculation that we need to understand conceptually. We need to establish our faculties so that we can have some perspective on it. And so this is what I'm suggesting is the core function of going for refuge. When I bow down, to the Buddha, I go for refuge to the Buddha. Little by little, that sense of I, that sense of self, is relativized. And this has been one aspect, one function of traditional religion for a very long time. Religion, when you look at what people are doing when they, they live in relationship to Brahma, or they live in relationship to Jehovah, or Allah, or the Almighty, or the Omnipotent, or the Dhamma, or the Tao. For much of human history, human beings have identified themselves as living in relationship with that which is inherently stable and secure. Even if it was an imagined reality, and even if some of those religions had all sorts of other unfortunate views associated with them, That doesn't deny the fact that it did serve the purpose of relativizing the sense of self. And now for many people in the world, they've turned away from religion. Scientism and materialism has diluted the influence of religion. And so people reject religion, understandably. However, the result is that they're no longer afforded the protection from becoming egocentric, from becoming self-centered, becoming possessed by anxiety. Clinging to a sense of self is guaranteed to produce a sense of instability because that sense of self is not secure, it's not stable. However, if we can feel inspired by the Buddha's teachings and have confidence and trust in these teachings, then that trust can encourage us to develop this refuge, the refuge in the Buddha in the sense that the Buddha is selfless, just knowing, awareness. Seeking security in that, I would suggest, is much safer than seeking security in our personality, or, for that matter, seeking security in some imagined almighty being who we think is looking after us. So if we have the good fortune to hear the Buddha's teachings, and they begin to ring true for us, then we can feel inspired and encouraged to make the effort to develop these refuges. I go for refuge to the Buddha. I go for refuge to the Dhamma. I go for refuge to the Sangha, understanding that the sense of I is not wrong, it's not bad, we don't have to feel embarrassed about it, we don't have to apologise for it. However, it needs to be trained, it needs to be tamed. And so we bow down, we practise with our body, I bow down to the Buddha, I lower my head to the Buddha. We have we have these Buddha images, or the Dhammachaka wheel, or the Bodhi tree, these images of the Buddha and the Dhamma. that We have the Dhamma and the Bodhi Tree were actually symbols that the Buddha himself encouraged. And then from the time that the Greeks arrived in Afghanistan, we we got Buddha images. And so for the last 2,000 years approximately, we've had Buddha images and they symbolize this possibility of the realization of selfless wisdom, selfless compassion. And this, surely, is something worth bowing down to. Now, just thinking about it, I just think wisdom and compassion are absolutely great and amazing. Well, we can have such a thought. However, what does our body feel about it? The body's been conditioned by all sorts of other self-centred activity, promoting ourselves, defending ourselves, lying about ourselves, we've been doing for years and so we include our body in the effort, and so we offer candles and incense to the shrine, which these symbols, these gestures, which connect with our heart's aspiration to be freed from this misidentification with deluded personality. We bow down, we lower our heads, we lower our bodies in front of that which, we, which symbolizes that which we feel is truly worthy, huh? And with our speech, we're chanting, I am a servant of the Buddha. The Buddha is my lord and guide. The Buddha is sorrow's destroyer who bestows blessings on me. If we're chanting in the, in the, in the English and, or chanting in the Pali, the, the same meaning. Reciting these words, I go for refuge to the Buddha. So cultivating the refuge in the Buddha by way of body, by way of speech, by way of mind intentionally disciplining attention, reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha. Yes, the human being that lived in India 2,500, 2,600 or something years ago. That human being who made this great renunciation out of interest in the possibility of awakening beyond the deluded relationship to life. Because he was interested in that. He made the great renunciation and the great effort and, and then realized for himself the great liberation and then spent the rest of his life teaching it. He didn't have to. He could have lived a very comfortable life. However, he chose to out of compassion, a sense of recognizing the suffering of living beings and also out of wisdom, a sense of understanding that his example of living a life of simplicity and renunciation would be, could be an inspiration for people. So reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha, reflecting on what we mean by going for refuge, does it mean just believing in this person who lived in India? Or is it not the case that these teachings are pointing to developing the potentials we have as human beings, these potentials, the potential for faith, the potential for energy, The potential for mindfulness, the potential for disciplined attention, steadied attention, the potential for discernment, these potentials that we have, sadha, virya, sati, samadhi, panya, all religions relate to these qualities to varying degrees. However, depending on how accurate the views taught by these religions are, we may or may not progress towards true wisdom and compassion. Mm. Uh, a lot of religious systems have very distorted stories associated with them, and as I was saying, even though living with the perception of yourself in relationship to some almighty being effectively relativized the sense of self, unfortunately, you could pick up a whole lot of other stories, which caused a lot of disharmony within the individual and within societies and within our world. So I'm not advocating, I'm not promoting such religious beliefs, obviously. However, I would encourage cultivating the refuge in the Buddha by way of body, speech and mind, reflecting on the possibility that if we invest in this selfless, just-knowing awareness, there's going to be the effect of freeing us from, there could be the effect, I'm not talking about any guarantees here, but there could be the effect, the benefit of freeing us from identification with that which is inherently unstable. The sense of self... Is effectively relativized. It's no longer playing center stage. It's got a part to play. The sense of self has got a part to play in this drama. However, the deluded inflated sense of self always wants to be center stage. It's all about me, my thoughts, my opinions, my views, my preferences, and how dare you challenge me. That state of self-obsession is really uncomfortable and really dangerous. So investigating, considering the value of the cultivation of the refuge in the Buddha and see how it affects the way we relate to our views, our feelings, our thoughts our preferences. See if it doesn't effectively help us loosen our grasp on the false fulcrum of self-centeredness or self-obsession. See if it can help us loosen our grasp. Again, remember, we're not trying to... We're not talking about getting rid of the sense of self. It's how to not take ourselves so seriously. How can we be confronted with a situation and find that we just don't know what to do and still be okay about that? According to me in my way, I like to know what I'm doing all the time. I like to think that I'm in control. I love being in control. All deluded personalities love being in control. All deluded egos are control freaks. And if we're identified in that mode, then when we're faced with a situation where I don't know what to do, that's really stressful. That's really, really difficult. I was reflecting on this recently, how in the context of this current pandemic and how some weeks or months ago people started asking me and saying oh, have you had the vaccinations? And I said, oh yeah, yeah I had the vaccination. And I was surprised at how people said, oh wonderful, oh that's good. Well, what's the big deal? I mean I don't know whether I should or shouldn't. I mean, I'm not, I don't have a degree in medicine I'm not a virologist or an epidemiologist. However, when I I talk to medical people and, and listen to what the virologists and epidemiologists are doing, and they seem to be having the vaccine, and saying, oh, well, okay, well, there's a risk. Obviously, there's a risk in being vaccinated. And they tell you about all the risks, and you can read the literature, and think, okay. However, there's also a risk of not being vaccinated, and so what are we faced with? Well, I don't know. I don't know what I should do. Well, if we're not okay about not knowing, if Our addiction, to me and my way, means that we're still locked into always wanting to feel secure and not being able to open up to the feel of actual insecurity, actual uncertainty. This situation right now is really uncertain. Nobody knows the right thing to do. Nobody knows how the vaccine is going to affect us, as far as I can tell. Nobody knows what the virus is going to do. Nobody knows what the future's like, as far as I'm aware. How do we meet that? How do we handle that? Well, I'm personally very cautious about telling other people how they should meet it in terms of getting vaccinated or not getting vaccinated. But personally, I know that I feel very grateful that I can not know and feel, in this case, relatively okay about it, and then weigh up the risks and say, oh, well, okay well, I'll trust the medical people that I know and just go with what they say. Or similarly, some other challenging situation like you know, anger. If you have a major issue with being pulled into the vortex of anger, without a perspective on this manifestation of the sense of self, Without a perspective on it, that's really painful. That's the tendency to be totally drawn into that vortex. Mm. I become enraged. It's not just a mild, bad mood. Mm. If we don't have any perspective on it, then we get pulled into it. So cultivating the refuge and selfless, just knowing awareness, if we think about the refuge and this approximation to what the Buddha was referring to as true self-reliance, well, I would suggest this helps us get a perspective on our wild, untamed nature. It's easy to judge it. It's easy to fight it. It's easy to get lost in it. How do we find a perspective on it? How do we relativize? How can the sense of self be relativized to the degree where we're able to get just a little bit of space around the demands, the sometimes intense demands and preferences of me and, me and my way. Well, this is why I think personally the cultivation of the refuges is so profoundly important and one that supports us in our aspirations to realise what's potentially possible in this human existence, and it doesn't have to be a dramatic thing, like if you hold yourself dear, then you constantly maintain careful self-regard. That doesn't have to refer to doing a lot of special things, like going on special retreats or having special initiations, small moments constant careful self-regard includes lots of small moments let's not underestimate the small moments of careful self-regard like the cultivation of the the four divine abidings the four brahma-viharas and you know, the cultivation of kindness and compassion empathetic delight and equanimity small moments of kindness just, just feeling caught up in some painful state careful self-regard might mean just stopping and remembering to think one thought may I be well may I be free from suffering just, just one brief moment could be enough to interrupt uh, to inhibit the pull towards being caught up in that vortex of wild untamed heart energy. More compassion. Empathetic delight. These small moments. Have you ever noticed how when you, for instance, if you pour, you've got a a pack of tea, or you've got a new pack of tea and you you pour it into the tea caddy or or a pack of coffee and you're emptying it into the coffee canister and, and then you're going to make a pot of tea or cup of coffee you take a scoop out. That one scoop I've noticed is how you take one scoop of tea out of the tea caddy and it looks like nothing's changed. And yet when you've done that for a few days, a few weeks, the tea caddy's empty. It really does make a difference. And this is to me it's an example of just how how easily fooled we can be by the way things appear to be. One small moment, one small teaspoon of tea taken out of a tea caddy doesn't seem to make a difference. However, lots of one small teaspoons of tea empty the tea caddy. So likewise, with this constantly maintaining careful self-regard as an effort of aligning ourselves with that which is potentially available for human beings, to make our lives into a source of blessings, something truly worthwhile. Thank you very much this evening for your attention.